0: to the Red Duff Podcast. I'm Blue. And I'm Liz. And I'm Rainey. And today is book
1: club meeting number two. Thank you Rainey for joining us. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to talk about chapter three. What if I talked about race wrong? I thought it was a the uh, beginning. We can get more detail later about the story but As a white person, I think the conclusion after reading the story was, you're going to get it wrong, accept it, and then here's some tips from Ms. Oluo to have a more productive and less harmful conversation about race uh, with people of color. What did you think, Rainey,
2: about that? I, I really love this chapter. I felt very seen in this chapter. Um, I really liked how she was talking about proximity to blackness does not equate understanding or shared experience of blackness. Um, and it really, I, I can think of a lot of different scenarios where trying to explain to white people that they've done harm in these conversations and this defensiveness that she was speaking of, you know, like it was like she was writing to me. So, you know, hearing her talk about you know, white people getting challenged on how down they are or, you know, not understanding like, oh, well, you know, you're biracial, you're part white and why those are issues. I thought that spoke really deeply. It spoke deeply to me as a mother of biracial children, even though I'm not a white mother, I'm a black mother. So I think that, you know, I think there's a little bit of a difference there with how I approach my children, just because I do have those shared experiences with my kids in a different way. Um, But one of the things that I really found was really interesting was again, the way she was talking about the tips and getting it wrong. Um, I think I've come across a lot of white people where I think there's this idea that if you try really hard that you should get kudos for trying, you know, like, but I, that wasn't what I meant. Like this idea of intentions versus perception. And I think that white people in general have a very hard time with that. I think that we have, this white supremacist culture where you know if you try your best to be a good person that's all there is to it and anybody making you feel bad about trying to be a good person is overly sensitive or is unkind and you know it's, I, it's like setting yourself on fire to keep other people warm. And I think that's what people of color have done, especially when we are in all white areas or all white situations where we are constantly being cut with microaggressions. But when we point them out, it's like, we've done something really horrible to a white person. And we, again, have to set ourselves on fire just to keep them warm to So they don't feel uncomfortable. So I really liked how she kind of dived into that and realized and I think that's the biggest thing is you are absolutely going to get this wrong. If you are a white person who wants to talk about race and who wants to get into this work, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to cause harm. And you just have to accept that fact. It doesn't matter how hard you tried. Just like when we talk to children about, you know, well, it doesn't matter that you didn't mean to hurt your friend's feelings. You still hurt your friend's feelings. We can understand it on that very basic level. But when it comes to extending that same courtesy to people of color there's just kind of like but i don't understand like i that's not what i meant but it doesn't and it doesn't matter that that's what you meant you know she does talk a lot about how much baggage people of color carry so yes maybe your one comment in your head wasn't that big of a deal But we bring the entire history of our trauma, our shared experiences, our our trauma with us, with every little jab, with every little thing. And so sometimes it's too much. And maybe you were not the one who, you know, was responsible for all of that. But we are constantly camels who have these, you know, humps of straw on our backs. And you never know which one is the one that's going to break it. You know, because we fight and we deal with this work every single day. Racism is never stops for us, it's always something that we are involved in. So, there is more than likely than not, you as a white person are going to say the wrong thing to the wrong black person at the wrong point of time. And that wasn't your intention. And she gives beautiful tips on how to move forward because I think one of the hardest things is having white allies who are in this work and then you call them out and then they just don't wanna be a part of the work anymore. They're like, well, you know, I can't do this and you're mad at me and how to persevere. Like people of color have to persevere. We don't have a choice. We can't step away from this work. We can't step away from this at all. And, you know, for you to choose to continue with it even though it's uncomfortable That's how you can tell that you're an actual ally, that you can take that knock on the head and be like, okay, I messed up and I'm going to continue messing up, but I can make sure I don't mess up in the same way rather than taking that to heart and then letting your white guilt get in the way because there's nothing worse than white guilt. Like that does nothing. White guilt does nothing for us, right? That, you know, you feeling so bad that you feel like you're a monster or you not being able to deal with it, That. That doesn't help, you know. So you really have to decenter your whiteness and decenter yourself in these conversations. And she has some really great tips on that that I think I really enjoyed reading. Not enjoyed. That's that's completely the wrong
0: word. <laughs> I, I read it. It probably is enjoyment because it's like you said, we're being seen, we're being heard, and it is enjoyed, It's enjoy. It's it is. What's the word I'm looking for? It is pleasing that someone is laying it out and it's very clear because just as you were speaking and mentioning so many of the points that she does list as I think about it and relating it to you know mindfulness and being a good listener and then being a good person right these are aspects of like social emotional health that you should consider in communication So some of it too, as we look more, you know, into it is for our our white listeners, are you being, um, are you being neglected by not being empowered with these skills in your communities, you know, and if you, if that is like, in thinking about your population that you teach training and so many other students that, um, do not get the opportunity to get what you're giving to them. You know, this, this is a way to flip it too. It's, you deserve to have this information because you need to know how to interact with people. Um, you also need to know how to take things on the chin and keep it moving. It's, um, it's unjust that there's only one population as you were stating basically, and that is us, the black population that is responsible for considering anyone else's feelings and any, um, the way anyone else thinks about, you know, what is said or what is done. When I look at some of the points such as um, ask yourself, am I trying to be right or am I trying to do better? Okay, that should be taught to you when you're a child, right? That should be taught to you when you're a child about how you interact with people and how you um, communicate with them, how you treat them. Let's even go on to... Um, I'm kind of going back a little bit. When you start to feel defensive, stop and ask yourself why. So this is also for, again, this is social, emotional, mental health. Like if you don't have these skills as an individual, that's problematic. That's problematic. Um, And it's problematic to the whole because you are causing um, chinks in the chain. You know, you're, you're not regarding anyone else but, but yourself. And it's also like, I mean, I can only say it so many times. You're not being a good listener. I think this makes me think about this seminar that I took a while ago, and they broke down the different types of listeners. And of course, I'm a talker, love to talk, could talk all day. For me, I realized that I was, years ago, I'm a lot better with it now, but I was the responder, right? So the whole time you're talking, I'm not listening. I'm just, you said one key word and I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to say. This is how I'm going to say it. That is what is happening with white America. You are not listening. You have to listen because the experiences are very unique and the experiences within their uniqueness are not, um, they also, you know, there are all different types of people within the black community. And we have to recognize that, pay attention to it and just just be, be aware of it, but also be um, willing to learn. And listen, like when I went, I've gone, I enjoyed traveling a lot. So I've been to, I would say a good number of different countries, um, you know, and some of it is very much Americanism that we carry with certain expectations when we arrive other places, right? And I remember having those experiences and I'm like, why do I think there's supposed to be an English speaking assistant that's going to greet me when I get on, you know, when the plane arrives at the location and then they're going to walk me around because I didn't pay for that service, that's the first thing. And then Mm -hmm. second of all, I actually came to experience the community, the culture that I'm visiting. So with that being said, right, I allow the people that I'm meeting to have opportunities to speak, to tell me about their culture, to um, dive into their culture, to see the nuances of it, the colloquialisms of it, et cetera. And that to me is just having interest. If you're not willing to listen, then you might also need to adjust, address the fact within yourself that you're not truly interested. And if you're not truly interested, right, that brings us to another point of point one that she said, state your intentions. You, this is a reflective period. Like any, I'm, and I'm just jumping all around because I feel like although they are in order, there's, they can, you know, you can constantly reflect and go back to one or the other. But stating your intentions, is this conversation about you? Is this, con- if, because if it's about you, then that's perfectly fine find someone who wants to talk about you and enjoy talking about you. If it's not about you and you really have the desire, then you'll know that you need to listen. You'll know that you need to listen. Um I think that you both made good points about understanding as she says in the book like it's not going to be perfect and I'm the I am the queen of sticking my both feet in my mouth. I actually obviously think they taste really, really good. I went through a period where they were tasty. And I just was like, one foot, two foot. Does anybody else have a foot? Like, that's just what I was about because I was going through a period of diarrhea of the mouth, you know? And we, many of us, like white people, you are not different. You are not different. Expose yourself, be vulnerable and learn. Expose yourself, be vulnerable, and learn. You will be such a better person for it.
2: And I think a lot of this is, I think, white people who come into this work initially don't realize that this work actually takes a lot of internal work. Mm -hmm. I think that they come into this thinking, what can I do to help them, right? Like, how can I make these external things happen? And you can't do any of that until you face a lot of these internal things. So all of these tips are all very, very much so internalized. um, Because I think that a lot of times they don't have to face internal battles, like people of color, you know, like we talk about double consciousness and us always being aware of how we're being perceived at any point in time and how that changes our chances for success in different, in different arenas. And, it's not quite the same for white people. And again, this idea of, but I tried hard, you know, trying hard doesn't really mean much as much to people of color, right? Like you can try hard all day, but you have systems that are set up against you and systems that are, that uphold white supremacy. So when you have grown up in a society that just your intentions are enough for your success, then it's really hard to take a sit back and realize my intentions really don't mean crap at this point. It's how did this make this person feel? So, you know, um, and even having a sit back, I, like I really liked how her first tip was stating your intentions. Cause I think sometimes I feel like I've gotten into, uh, you know, many discussions with pe- white people online and in person where I don't, they have no idea what exactly they're trying to get out of this conversation. You know, they- they just want to talk and they they want to talk about, well, this is my opinion. This is how I feel. And, you know, I've seen myself kind of go through these. Like I had a conversation with a white coworker um, about a book that should not have been read in their classroom. And, you know, I, I made sure I, I tone believed myself a lot in that, like trying to explain why this was a problematic book. And stating my intentions like I want you to know that this is problematic so you don't have parents come to your classroom upset and I reading through these 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 tips I was like oh this this teacher really needed these tips because their intentions were all over the place they um they, they didn't do their research. You know, I had done my research We're like, well, this is why this is problematic. This is the top priority is to um, make sure that we have an inclusive environment for all students in your class. Um, so that's why we're doing this. And, um, you know, the defensiveness, right? Very defensive. And this is not how you have conversations with people. Um, you know, I do this work and I am a feminist. And and I was like, this has nothing to do with feminism. We're talking about race right now. And right. it just went really it, and it was it was about an 18 email back and forth exchange, and it was exhausting. And I was thinking, and my I, I sent this to my sister, and my sister was like. How many times do you think this person stopped and thought about what they were going to say before they emailed you versus how many times did you stop and think about how you're being perceived before you approach this person to make sure that your words weren't misconstrued? And I was like, yeah, you can see the typos. You can see that this was done in anger. This was done in defensiveness. This was done in a, you don't know what you're talking about. I would never, how dare you call me out for this? You know, I I have black students all the time and I'm their champion and this, that, and the other. And you're just like, but you're making a mistake and I'm telling you that you're causing harm. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You're causing harm right now. And so, and I realized that that is something that it takes a lot of practice for white people. And that is the initial, if you're not in this work, they don't understand how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. And they will, a lot of them will kind of lash out to make sure that they don't feel uncomfortable. And I think it's a little different for people of color because we deal with racism and microaggressions every day. We live lives of discomfort all day, every day, you know, unless I am in am at my house with not being on Zoom, I am in some form uncomfortable at all points.
0: And okay. that is like a prerequisite for the next chapter, which we'll get into, but check your privilege, right? So like, <laughs> but how there are some of us, right? And I've been doing that mental work this week. I have been like with my gratitude list and really reflecting on that for self We are not even safe in our homes now. Some of us, while we have the the false sense of security at this point, right? But um, I think that's so interesting when we say things like that because there's still so many different um, portions of the community that have even more constraints, restraints um, being put upon them for or resulting in an inability to um or not an inability let's say what it is resulting in um discussions being presented with multiple types of emotions behind them um and rainy could you jump into chapter 15 i know they had referenced it in the book and it was going right along with what you were talking about Oh, well, yeah, because in her tip she was talking about
2: tone policing right mm-hmm. and that's a huge thing that we see a lot in in this work is um, she makes a great reference in chapter 15 about the difference between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. I did a project on Martin on Malcolm X when I was in the ninth grade of autobiography and I remember my teacher at the time was like, yeah, but you know, he was, he was violent. And I was like, I, I feel like you don't understand this man at all. I've always very much so been very attracted to Malcolm X and his ideas and, and Muhammad Ali too, when, you know, mm-hmm. he would talk about, I'm not going over and fighting in Vietnam when I can't even drink at the water fountains mm-hmm. here, you know, and people like to color him as an, you know, anti-patriot and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, and, and he should just take, you know, that, that, that model minority. Right that minority that's bite-sized and easy to take and that's how you're expected to be you're expected to make people comfortable right. and and that's all what chapter 15 is all about right is um you know that comparison Martin Luther King Jr we love to hail him as this lovely man who just you know was loving and righteous and and you know he was he was a, a, a public enemy number 1 he had a disapproval rating at the time of his death. People hated Martin Luther King Jr. They hosed him down. They suck, they sick dogs on him. So to act like he was just this great unifier, people talked about him like they talk about Obama now that he was this divider. He wouldn't shut up. You know, if you read his letter to Birmingham, letter from Birmingham jail, when he's talking about moderate white Christians and how they keep telling him, wait, and you're being, you're being too much. And he's saying, we don't have time to wait anymore. You know, he wasn't this model citizen that people like to claim he is, you know, and Malcolm X just had a different outcome, different delivery, but both of their deliveries were all about freedom and and safety for people of color, Mm -hmm. you know, and even as beautiful as Martin Luther King Jr.'s message was, they still thought that he was problematic and they still killed him. They still so followed true. him. They firebombed his house, you know, with his children in it. They did horrible things to him. They he got death threats all the time. So this narrative that I think white people love to use to try to tone police black people, like this is how I can accept your message. If you were only like this. And right. uh, Miss Alulo, Alulo said something that I really loved. She said on page 203 in chapter five, but a quieter, gentler voice did not bring a quieter, gentler world. All it did was give people the impression that I was okay with living like a second class citizen. All it did was increase my burden. And, you know, and I think at near the end of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, people don't like talking about how he had a lot of regrets for having brought so many people to this point and it not getting better, you know, like having people following him in these marches and getting beaten. And he really questioned, was this the right way to go about it? Right. Because right. it wasn't gentle. Martin Luther King Jr. did not die gently. Right. Not at all. He died violently, even though right. he right. led a peaceful life. He, he died the same way that Malcolm X died, even though they said Malcolm X was the more violent of the two. They both met bloody ends, right? And right. they met these bloody ends because- they, people didn't like what they had to say, you know, but now people use Malcolm X as like, well, look, um, you know, Malcolm X's death was, as um, she says in the book, was no more than a natural consequence of being Black and angry. And that's what they like to say now about the Black Lives Matter movement, right? That um, they, people say they can't support the militancy of Black Lives Matter. You know, I can't, if they just said it in a different way, if they just talked about it in a different way, and really it just comes down to, you want us to make you comfortable, right? You want us to make you, you, you will only accept that we are equal citizens. If it's on your terms and you approve of the way we deliver the message. Um, You know, she says something like, she just asked people one question, do you believe in justice and equality? You know, because if you believe in justice and equality, you believe in it all of the time for all people. Right. So when they say, well, I just, I, I, I believe in black lives matter, but I just don't like their message, but you don't, if you can put qualifiers on that and say, but I don't like the way they do this. The message at the end of the day is black lives matter. And you can't pretend like you don't know what it means anymore. It's been explained a thousand times. We've used so many a- analogies, you know, with the breast cancer, you know, uh, comparing it to breast cancer, you know, we're not saying all cancers don't matter. We're just talking about breast cancer right now, or, you know, the analogy of people's houses on fire, you know, this house is the one on fire. This is the house that we're focused on right now, but everybody's house matters. So if you are trying to pretend like you still don't understand, you're a liar at this point, it's been explained a thousand times. You just don't like the way it's being delivered. And if you don't like the way it's being delivered, then you need to do a lot of internalized reflection on why you are so bothered by that. Because at the end of the day, my life mattering, I don't need to be polite for my life to matter. I don't need to say please and thank you to have these rights. I don't need to be kind in my message. I don't need to make you feel comfortable. That's not my job to make you feel comfortable. that In happened,
1: re- oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. That happened recently uh, with the phrase "defund the police." Uh, like it was even Barack Obama who said, "You need to get a snappier slogan for people to um, to support your message."
2: Which is, I think, that's that's absolutely the wrong way to go about it. I mean, because that's exactly what we mean. We didn't say dismantle or dismiss the police. We said defund. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me, not get rid of, defund. It means to allocate funds to other services for community work because the police can't do all of the community work that needs to be done. And that is being asked of them. There are a lot like teachers in that respect, except we as teachers don't carry around guns and killing our students, right? But like we don't, You know, we're asked as teachers to be counselors and, you know, um, cheerleaders for our students and to work a bunch of unpaid hours. We wear a lot of hats as educators. The only difference is, is one, most educators have to have a bachelor's degree at least. And we go through a lot of training to work with children, just to be in rooms with children. Right. I have gotten more, I have more education as a teacher than a lot of police officers. Right. But I don't carry a firearm. I don't make life and death decision, decisions. And so they, I wear all of these hats, but also I'm educated and I go through professional development all the time. You look at a police officer, we are asking them to be social workers. We are asking them to be counselors. We are asking them to be law enforcement. We are asking them to community police. We, they are not as educated as they need to be in a lot of these areas. And then we give them guns. We give them ammunition. And then we tell them scary ideas of people of color. And then we send them out into these communities that they're not a part of and say, And we scare them. We let them know that Black and Latinx people are the boogeyman. And then we wonder why they're being shot and killed when this entire police system was started to police Blacks and Latinx. And And this idea that, you know, well, you know, I just don't like the way you're saying defund the police. We don't like the way that we're dying in the streets. How about that? If you're more concerned about the word defund than the fact that men and women are dying in the middle of the streets, bleeding out on camera or being choked out or dying mysteriously in vans on the way to jail or hanging themselves in jail. If you're more concerned with us saying defund because it makes you uncomfortable, then you're part of the fucking problem.
0: Agreed, agreed. I think um, building upon what you ladies are talking about um, I started to just take a little peek in the next book, Beyond Survival, and I read one of the chapters um, that discuss who security is in anyway, right? So they talked about how we are policing black and brown children from the beginning of time, right? And we also are not considering, and this also this directly relates to tone policing, right? So. Within that, we have children that are underserved, um, don't have the opportunities and exposure of, our, of their white counterparts, right? And maybe re- receiving services, maybe uh, participating in community um, events. What this chapter talks about is the fact that security and policing is always a presence in our communities. And to an extreme, right? So then, when we experience um, problematic responses of these aspects of law enforcement, um, when it occurs and it's unjust, such as a rape, assault, um, and these, we're talking about children, right? Um, Even just inflicting fear, imposing fear, all of these things, you. You have to listen in order to understand what the experiences and the stories of these children are, right? The other thing is, by doing that, we're creating a direct, prison, like, child to prison pipeline, right? Not even uh, taking away school because it's almost home at this point if it's in all aspects of your community. We've seen in um, New York where uh, certain communities are, were being heavily policed at the beginning of COVID people were being ripped off the streets. Other communities, people are freely walking their dogs, playing tennis, right? Now it's problematic overall because we all need to do what we need to do to get through this time. But who is actually receiving um, the arrest? Who is now um, experiencing a consequence on their record? Who is now not able to uh, vote, right? all of these things, because we don't know what this compounds into by this um, initiated secure or law enforcement that was not supposed to even, was not needed, was not required, right? So as I was reading that chapter, I was thinking more about because, you know, we all want to see the data, right? So I looked at some of the arrest rates for children, and this is the disgusting part about the way even the data is listed for children between the ages of zero to 17, right? So <laughs> what does that say about the way we are considering our babies, right? From zero to 17, why are like that? That's another conversation, another episode, but that in itself to digest upon, right? So you one thing that I thought about as I was looking at the data was the occurrences of violence or um, whatever the unlawful act was, was higher in the white community, right? But of course the arrest is higher in the black community. Now, when you further look through that data, you'll see that if if you care to, there are direct correlations to um, access to food, access to things, access to thought, um, understanding, ability to read. If you have the, that understanding as you're applying the data, you can clearly see that it's it's not that the data is skewed; is that the system is directly forcing people to those routes, right? So then, when we want to talk about tone policing, like. I mean, and this was just me watching um, some little daytime TV, right? Court TV. But going back to tone police and tying it in, there was a man, Black man on there that was saying something about how he could you know, he had a job. He wasn't able to get a job. And um, there, there was an issue with his child's mother. So the judge, who happened to be Black, took an interest in him and said, well, you know, what is going on? Why can you not find a job? So the child's mother says, he has an engineering degree. So he's the judge then asked him, do you have something on your record? And he says, yes. So let's think about that. Let's think about that. Um.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about, how many young black men will face incarceration sometime in their lifetime? I think at the highest in the late 2000s, late or early 2000s, late nineties, it was estimated one out of every three boys would face incarceration. So if we have that on their records and then you have them as candidates, as you know, when you put them in jobs, who are you going to pick? You know, that's a privilege that a lot of white boys have is that when they go in or if they do get in trouble they get much lighter sentences and so these judges dole out these sentences that create problems for these young boys of color and their lives forever it follows them i mean we take away their right to vote so now we're telling them your vote and your opinion doesn't even matter in this country anymore and we see how our prison population is complete, you know, African-Americans make, I think last I checked, I think it's like 17% of the population of America overall. That number is double, maybe tripled of our representation in the jails. We're not more violent. We're just prosecuted and convicted at much higher rates. And then it makes this, this horrible, cycle that we can't get out of. And then you have these people who, when we talk about this, we say, yeah, this is problem. You then again, this tone policing, well, you're not making me comfortable. I don't like Mm -hmm. this, but you know, you know, what makes us uncomfortable is that this guy who has an engineering degree can't get a job anymore. How about that? That's uncomfortable or, um, or just the fact that the, the way that the police are dealing with us, Mm -hmm. You know, um, like I think I was saying a little bit earlier, I mean, this idea of defunding the police, it's again, allocating funds. The police are far too strong. They're far too strong and they're not interested or a lot of these police departments are not interested in doing this type of work, this internalized work. Here in California, uh, Riverside County Sheriff Chad Bianco has gotten all kinds of press for his defiance of Governor Newsom's stay-at-home orders. He's saying, I can't enforce this curfew. However, when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, he enforced a curfew for a rumor, and I'm using air quotes right now, a rumored unruly gathering of residents in Temecula, and he shut the city down. There was curfew, you couldn't be out. So you can do that in protest, or you can do that in light of and before a perceived threat of people protesting for their rights to live, but you can't, you can't put a curfew when an actual scientifically backed super virus is running rampant. California is horrible. Riverside County, where I am right now, we are, our ICUs are out. We are almost out of beds. It's terrible right now but he can't enforce that. And in his refusal to enforce that, there was a bar that was open. We have a 10 o'clock curfew in our area right now. He won't enforce it. There's a, there was a bar where somebody was stabbed at two in the morning. Why is the bar even open and he won't do anything about it. So that's more dangerous and somebody got stabbed at a bar that shouldn't have been open, rather than people of color and their allies protesting about not wanting police officers like himself standing on our necks until we die so he gets to pick and choose when he wants to when he wants to um when he wants to enforce laws and that's the problem that's why we're talking about defunding the police because they need more oversight they they're it's far too powerful they need more oversight they need more community policing and that's that's what we're talking about and so when you say these, Things like, you know, we don't like the way your message is. Even Obama saying, you know, we need a better message. You know, our our livelihoods aren't snappy catchphrases, right? Mm. You know, Mm. you, you as white America need to get tougher skin. Our skin has had to be tough for a lot longer. You need to start toughening up your skin and realize we're going to say things that maybe you don't like because it makes you uncomfortable. Again, we live in discomfort every day and our discomfort oftentimes ends in our incarceration and our death. So I, I at this point, I don't really care that you don't like the term defund the police. I don't like that I have to have conversations with my son about how to deal with the police.
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Way too much emphasis being spent on the words and attacking the black women leaders who are behind the hashtag BLM, Black Lives Matter, instead of focusing on the harm. And Ms. Oluo talks about tone policing is an important, wait, Ms. Oluo gives us a definition tone policing is when someone, usually the privileged person in a conversation or situation about oppression shifts the focus of the conversation from the oppression being discussed to the way it is being discussed. Just to echo what what you had just said.
2: Right. I mean, like even like I was saying earlier, having that conversation with that coworker and instead of that coworker listening and saying, listen, this book is problematic. Instead of listening and having that focus on, hey, this is a book that we probably shouldn't have. It got shifted to, I don't like that you emailed me about this. I don't like this and the way that I came at this person versus, but I'm telling you, you caused harm. And and, and again, it's, it's this you know white fragility, this inability to have kind of tough skin about this. Um, uh, Ms. Oluo, Oluo says, if you've been privileged enough not to suffer from the cumulative effects of systemic racism and are therefore able to look at racially charged situations one at a time and then let it go, please recognize that very few people of color are able to enter in discussions on racism with the same freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, so again, when you tell police and say, you know, well, I don't like this, you're, when you're talking to people of color, you're talking to people who have entire lived experiences, entire lives where we are dealing with this. And you can look at it one case at a time, one bit at a time, and not as a whole. It is impossible for me to separate that when I come into conversations, especially as this is my life's work, and separate that out. I can't do that. It, I carry that hurt with me all the time. I carry those experiences with me. And is my presentation always, I don't even wanna say polite because how are you polite when you talk about racism? I think this idea of grace and courtesy and politeness is also a Western white culture idea, you know, to make people feel comfortable but feeling comfortable isn't good all the time. So, you know, and she had mentioned, where did she mention it? Um, Oh, yes. Wait, um, yeah. To refuse to listen to someone's cries for justice and equality until the request comes in a language you feel comfortable with is a way of asserting your dominance over them in the situation. Yeah, I,
1: that's a lot to unpack. So is that, is that why white people
2: want to talk so much about, I don't like the phrase, defund the police? I, I think so, because it's asserting dominance. I mean, my ex-husband did that too. He was like, he. I remember him telling me the same thing, you know, like, it, you know, I'd be all for it, but you know, this message about, you know, F the police and stuff like this, that makes me just not want to listen. Like, so you can turn so easily away from all the other things because they said this one thing that you don't like. It, it's almost like, I'll make an analogy of like, you know, it being in an English class in college, right? And your professor makes you read a book you don't like. I'm like, well, I'm not going to take this class anymore. I don't like it. I'm going to flunk. How stupid would that be? Right? Like you still have to learn it. Even if that's not the book you like, maybe you don't like the way the author writes. It doesn't take away from the value of the book. And it doesn't take away from the fact that you need to be in the class. And the fact that you can walk away from that class and not flunk out is a lot of privilege. Mm. And white people being able to walk away from these conversations because they feel uncomfortable shows a lot of that unchecked privilege. I can't walk away from these conversations. You know, I mean, not at heart. I mean, I can physically walk away in the moment, but these conversations are my livelihood. They're my children's livelihood. I have to have these conversations or I have to deal with racism at all points in my life you know, so if you can sit and decide, I don't want to engage in this. I don't want to talk about this because I don't like the way you're talking about it. Check your privilege, which is, you know, chapter four, but it's it, it...
1: beautiful. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Dovetail. Yeah.
1: Do <laughs> you think that when white people focus on the phrase, like a few years ago, it was uh black lives matter. Like that's It's crazy controversy, but now it's starting, they're trying to start it with defund the police. Do you think that they, that white people, I think white people that voted for Biden or consider themselves progressives, um, again, check your privilege, some of them were quite shocked at the high level of white uh, actively racist Uh, members of the society they I feel like they were very especially we live in the northeast like well I live in the northeast very isolated like it's really the majority of us are not like this do you think that when they focus on that like it's almost like blaming the movement like you would be successful if you just chose a nicer phrase like psychologically it's like well we're not successful because the majority where we live is aggressively, actively against Black lives to support. They really focus on defund on the police, this phrase, like, but for, we would be there for you.
2: What do you think about that? I think that it is, again, kind of, you know, that idea of privilege. I think that people don't want to think that they have the things that they have And that it wasn't all them, you know, and so if they can, if, so, you know, in the book and, you know, I won't dive too, too much into chapter four yet, but in the book she does talk about how, you know, checking your privilege and that idea of, um, you know, white people feeling like I've got everything I've got because I worked hard. And this idea that you have these systems that put in place that made walking through these doors so much easier for you is uncomfortable. Because if you can say, I got here because of me, then you can also say, well, you don't deserve this because you didn't work as hard as I did, you know, which is another way of saying, you know, well, if you just did things nicer, you would have things easier. You know, if you had your message nicer, if you were more polite about your message, then you would have more... You would have more equality, you would have more freedom. So it takes the blame off of them and their complacency and white supremacy, and places it on an already burdened people, and puts another burden on them. You are the reason why This is the way it is. And again, talking about like that Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King Jr., you know, and this tone policing, if you only did X, Y, and Z, but African Americans, Black people, people of color have been playing by this game for 400 years, and things still are not right, right? If you only were nicer, um, you know, if you only stopped speaking your native language, when we took you over here, we would, you would be better. You know, um, if you only stayed on your side of the street, things would be better, right? If you only drank uh, in your water fountains, things would be better, right? If you only lived in your side of the neighborhoods where we've redlined you, things would be better. You know, if you only didn't smoke the crack cocaine that we flooded into your neighborhoods, things would be better. They keep telling us, if you stop doing these things, things are gonna be better. And you still do those things and things are still not better, you know? But again, it places the burden on us to fight a system that was created to keep us down. White supremacy, like, you know, the book talks about at the chapters one and two and racism, was created to not just uphold white culture, but to put down any other culture. Because you can't have one go up without somebody else going down. So this is a way to keep that status quo. So, you know, basically saying dangling that carrot, like if you just did this thing, things would be better. But that's been the story for 400 years. And you say these things, you know, and you have these model minorities and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how close your proximity to whiteness is. It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I'll take even me, for example, you know, and I'll I'll recognize, and there's a lot of privilege that I have, and I'm still unpacking all of the privilege I have, you know, I am a lighter skinned black woman. I mean, you can still tell I'm black, but I grew up where both my parents were college educated. And so education was always a thing. That was always something that like, you're just going to get a degree. That's just what you're going to do, you know? So being in a household where my dad was able to make enough money, where my mom was at home with us, so we weren't at home figuring out what to do on our own. You know, I had an adult in the house home when I got home from school. That's a privilege, right? Um, having, um, being in middle class in suburbia California, you know, and and being around a lot of white kids in really affluent white neighborhoods and white schools. That's a privilege that I was able to take AP classes in high school, that I was able to hang out with valid Victorians and have conversations and, and, and speak my mind like that, that my parents put us in private school. And then when they put us in public school, it was a really great public school. That was privilege, right? Um, that I went and got, I have three degrees and multiple certificates and, and, you know, in education and things. And I've gone to lots of conferences and things like that. Those are all privileges. And even that, even though I've done all the things that they said, if you just do these things, if you just get educated, if you are easy to, you know, um, I've I've become quite versed in being able to have conversations with white people. I talk to white people all the time. They dangle that carrot in front of me. It's still the same, right? I'm easier. I'm a bite size. I, I don't. I don't want to say that, but you know, in 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 the bigger grand scheme of things, out of people of color, I am less intimidating. I'm using air quotes again, right? Like I'm easier to digest, right? Like, you know, I, 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 the way I speak, the way I talk that I can sit there and have conversations with you about nerdy stuff too, like going to Comic-Con and, you know, I love Harry Potter and all of this stuff. It makes me feel less like an, an alien type of person. So those are all privileges I have. And still, even all of that, that I've checked off all of these boxes, still, I still get followed around. I still have to prove to people that I am intelligent enough to be an English teacher. I still have to show people, yes, these are my children. Yes, they are white passing almost, but these are my kids. I still have to go up against police officers when I had an ex-husband who destroyed our house and they didn't believe me over him. I still go to Beverly Hills and hung out and got followed through a a secondhand shop. Like I was going to steal somebody's stuff that was donated. I still deal with those. I still get pulled over by the police and asked why I'm in certain neighborhoods. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do, right? Like my father is law enforcement. He is a fed, he's retiring this year. He still gets pulled over as dark. He's dark skinned black guy. It doesn't matter. He's never, he's never gotten so much as a jaywalking ticket. His entire 56 years of living. And it's still not enough. So then when they come and you keep talking to us about if you just did this, if you just made us more comfortable, how many times do I have to fold myself and make myself small to make you comfortable for you to realize that I deserve the same rights and freedoms as you do? Like, can you give me a number? Can you tell me exactly what it is? Because a lot of us are curious. What exactly is it that we need to do that will get you on board and keep you on board? And after a while, it's like, it, there, there is no number. It doesn't matter. It's your discomfort and it's your problem. Not, not not you, Liz, but like, you know what I mean? Like it's it's white America's problem you're in you have to look internally and be very uncomfortable with what you're going to find there you have to be very uncomfortable with the privilege you have and realize that you were standing on the necks of people of color to be where you are and that's a hard realization but that's a realization you have to come to if you ever want to actually do this work thank you rainy Thank you. Do you want, well, I think
1: we'll do chapter four, uh, next time. Do you want to talk about, um, the sheriff, anything else before? Cause we can always, we can put it in the thing. You know what I mean? We can, I, I don't want to, um, limit. There was anything you want to talk about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, like, uh, if you look it up, um, I am a part of a group it down in, um, Southern California called Temecula unity that, you know, we've been working really hard on pushing the city of Temecula to realize its own biases within its people. So we were able to actually get city council to realize that they need a diversity council because when we told them that they needed it, they have like 80 people show up with like the most racist stuff talking about how they don't need it. And city council was like, oh my gosh, this is way worse than we thought it was. So, you know, they kind of did a favor for us by their open opposition and the racism, they realize that the city really needs it. Uh, Temecula is kind of um, in our area in Riverside County, it's probably the most wealthy city in Riverside County. Um, So the sheriffs, the way they do it is You know they outsource their work or they outsource their officers to different places versus next door there's a city called Marietta, and they have their own police department so that city has a lot more autonomy over the police you can say hey these are the things that are that are okay these are the things that are not so they started having more social workers going out on rides with the um with the police officers because there was a push for that like You know, you shouldn't have just police officers going to mental health crises because they're not trained for that. Take a social worker so you don't end up shooting and killing somebody who is having a mental health crisis, which is what they want to do. Um, Riverside uh, gets sued a lot. They go through a lot of litigations because a lot of their sheriffs are doing the wrong thing and they get in trouble. Uh, Sheriff Chad Bianco, when, when everything started off with COVID, he didn't take the proper requirements and two officers died of COVID and OSHA is actually suing him right now because, or suing Riverside County Sheriff's department because of their negligence. But you know who pays for that? The taxpayers. that doesn't come out of Sheriff Chad Bianco's pocket that comes out of the taxpayers' dollars. So he has gone on record and has been very, very loud. And he's been on CNN and even internationally on CNN Talking about how he is not going to enforce these rules that he is publicly criticizing Governor Newsom, who's the governor of California, who is starting to put pretty strict requirements on us, rightly so, because our COVID cases are out of control right now. I think I think we had um like a thousand or two just the other day. Like it was bad. We're we're getting well, very bad um la metropolitan area which is right outside of us is the worst in the country and we're not too far behind our COVID cases are terrible and so this sheriff deems it that he's not going to enforce it when businesses who have applied for permits to have their have their restaurants outside on the sidewalk decide mm-hmm. we're going to have stuff inside we're going to be open until midnight. We're going to serve drinks until midnight or until two, which there's a problem. Obviously, people are less careful when you're drinking at all hours of the night. You're not making good decisions there. Now's not the time for people to be out at bars. Now's not the time for people to be at dance clubs, right? You're not making good decisions. So he's decided he's not going to enforce those things. He And he's publicly said it. And it's giving a lot of, and you know they're the same people, these these trumpers and these anti-maskers they're all kind of one and the same they're <laughs> the ones who are in these huge lifted trucks with this huge american flag and then the police blue lives matter flags and the yellow don't tread on me flag like you know there it's a caricature at this point like you see all that and you're like oh okay so you really like alex jones too right is that is that where <laughs> and, and sean hannity are those the, are those your are those your bros you go to that okay yeah Yeah. And then masks don't actually work. And, you know, are you the ones who also go into businesses saying, I have a medical condition and I can't wear a mask. Yeah, no, we know, we see you, but we, we know exactly who you are and it's unoriginal, but he's given these people license to continue to do that. They go in and they're like, so wineries are staying open and people are getting hurt. People are getting ridiculous. And it's such a slap in the face to healthcare workers one of my best friend's mother is a healthcare worker and she's working in the icu and she's inundated right now and for him to give permission basically saying i'm not going to enforce it this stuff doesn't work it's not real what a slap in the face to all of the doctors all of the nurses and not just them the janitorial staffs in these hospitals the administrators in these hospitals everybody who works and goes into these environments that are festering with covid What a slap in the face it is to them that they are working around the clock trying to keep people alive. And he's not even going to say, you know what, I will do my part by saying, I am law enforcement. I'm going to enforce the law. But instead, he wants to make a political thing. And it's, it's ridiculous. But again, this is the same guy who when in June and July, when we had those Black Lives Matter protests, he was very quick to have a citywide curfew and he shut it down and he stopped anybody who was out and about. So you can enforce a curfew when it has to do with black people asserting their right to live peacefully but not when it's time to save people's lives from a pandemic.
1: Do you think he's aware that he's a pawn in the capitalist society where the interest is more on making money Um, businesses continuing over human life do you think he's even aware of what a pawn he really is
2: I don't think he cares because he's getting Mm. a slice of that cheese too because
0: you Mm. look I'm like
2: you know I went and looked at his Facebook page and the things he's doing he's flying out all over the place he's having these you know big parties and shindigs I saw something on his Facebook where he had like you know, a birthday party or something for him. And his name was like carved out of ice. Like, so he's making money. And I do think that he is politically motivated. You can tell he's grasping to move up to possibly make a move to become governor one day or something. So I think it's not that he's unaware. He just doesn't care. So he doesn't care about the sheriff deputies who are working 15 hour shifts and they're dealing with inmates. Who have COVID? He doesn't care about them. He cares about his political gains. He cares about the money because he's not the one in there with them. He's the one in his office. He's the right. one, you know, snoozing snoo- with, you know, millionaires and stuff. He's not the one making those on the job decisions, you know, but he's also the one who is representing cities in Riverside County and making Riverside County look absolutely ridiculous because now people think, hey, that's a county where I can do whatever I want. You know, that sheriff is gonna, and then we're gonna have people flooding the wineries, showing up, not doing what they're supposed to. And then who pays the ultimate price for that? The people who have to stay in those restaurants. I don't blame the people who are working in the restaurants. If your job Mm -hmm. says you need to come in and you are working minimum wage, you know, And most of the time, people of color, are people who are going to be working those jobs, I don't, I don't blame you at all. I don't blame you. You have to do your job. You have to work. You have to go in, right? So, but then you're putting them at risk. You're putting the nurses and the hospital workers at risk. Then, then these are the same people who are demanding that we open up schools. So then you're going to send your kids. And then you put people like me at risk as an educator, because you can't just do the right thing. You know, and then you're looking at Australia has gone like eight months without new COVID cases and they just opened up their whole city and like their whole country and they're partying. That Mm. could be us. If we just get it together, we, if we (laughs) could just do the right thing, we could be drinking whatever Australian drinks they drink. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it is. They, they, I'm, I'm terrified (laughs) of spiders to be totally honest, but, (laughs) but. I mean, that could be us if we weren't so selfish, but this we live in a white supremacist capitalist society where looking out for your neighbor is not financially sound. So capitalism is selfishness in and of itself. And Sheriff Chad Bianco is one of the worst of there. And Southern California sheriffs are getting a bad reputation for it. Is there
1: anything we can do? Is there anything
2: to stop him? I think the biggest thing, what we're working on is just letting cities know, hey, you know, you can't fire an elected official. He's an elected official, which there's a lot of problems with how he was elected. We're following a lot of the money right now. And his biggest donor is the Riverside Sheriff's Union. So (coughs) the union is hiring within themselves, putting who they want there. And then also he's also the coroner. So then we're also looking. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a coroner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's so we were looking, our group was looking the other day and we're like, it's really funny that, you know, you have this list of all of these inmates that have contracted COVID, but like none have died of COVID. That's interesting. Then you realize who gets to write who dies of what the coroner. Wow. So is that what's happening? You know, like this is all like, this is just speculation at this point. So I can't say like, I'm trying to do a lot of research to figure out and follow the money and stuff, but we have figured out that the union is the one who donated the most to him for his election campaign. So that's just inside people policing, police, policing themselves, policing themselves, which is never a good situation, right? Right. And then, you know, you have somebody who is denying coronavirus, who is in charge of what to put on death certificates. I don't know about you, but that sounds really weird to me. Definitely. So the biggest thing we're trying to do right now is just to let cities know Make your own police department. That's how you defund the police. You make your own. Hire people within your own city. Police yourselves. Community policing, where you're getting people who live in your city who know these kids. Then your police department can force officers to be like, hey, you know what? You know, eight hours every week on your shifts, every two hours at the end of the shift, you need to go to the Boys and Girls Club. You're going to go in. you know street clothes, and you're going to make yourself known to these at-risk youth. Excuse me. And not in a way where you have a badge and a gun and handcuffs, but you are a regular human being playing basketball or, or taking them out on ride-alongs or something like that. So you show them that you are not someone to be afraid of. And then you recognize these kids when it comes time, when they are maybe doing something wrong, you know, this kid personally. And the first thing you're going to do is not to pull out a gun on this kid, but be like, John, what is going on? What's happening, right? Like, do I need to call your mom? I'm gonna call your mom right now. This is not okay. Instead of pulling a gun out on John and now John's another casualty. But this police officer who's known him for five or six years knows, you know, this is a good kid. He also is going through a lot at home. He's at home all by himself. He's got a mom who's working three jobs. He just needs a little guidance. That's what we mean by when we say defund the police you know or when we can make a push for saying hey we need social workers we need more programs in this community so instead of spending 40% of 40 50% of the city's budget on law enforcement spending it on different programs you know after school programs making sure your teachers have enough money opening up programs in schools making sure that every school has the same advantages making sure that you know you're you're having parent-teacher conferences at hours that all parents can get to things like that that's where we're saying put money into to make lives of your city better if you just throw it all at the police what are they using it for they're buying tanks and they're buying riot gear that's not policing that's militarizing
1: it's headed that way
2: absolutely i mean i went to a protest for black lives matter down in Uh, in June and I was there and, you know, it was a protest and I was standing in front of an officer in riot gear in front of a tank. Wow. In front of a tank in a small city, Moreno Valley. I'm sure most people, if you're not from California, you've never heard of Moreno Valley. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's what we were met with was riot gear, you know, instead of people like, hey, let's sit down and have conversations because they're, you know, they're afraid. We have people who have guns and weapons who are afraid of people who are tired of being marginalized and criminalized and killed. And it it's makes it Yeah.
1: I think it was your area historically where it was like the first, like Southern California where there was an incident that happened. Yeah. There's a um, there's a podcast that we that you and I both listen to, and I'm not going to shout them out because it's like uh, the hosts are two white males, and they're they're famous enough, they're doing enough work. But yeah. um, there's a there's a piece of your history, the tank chase, where yeah. a citizen yeah. got, uh, got a tank off of a military base, and he didn't kill anybody, and he did some property damage. And then there was another um, incident there was in Southern California, um, where with the gang criminal. What's that? The lady yeah, in the hospital a... with the gas. <laughs> Riverside. That was yeah, uh, that was us. What is yeah? What is that one called? There's um.
2: It was like where people would go in the room and they would die of like this noxious gas that was coming forth from this woman's body that had passed away. Yeah, we're we're doing great.
1: <laughs> what was that one called? Yeah, that's um. I forgot what and, Well, good. I'm glad they get, they're doing well enough. They don't need me, Yeah. To, they don't need me to like, but yeah, there's, but there was also um, like burglaries or there were some criminals trying to steal money or something and they had automatic rifles and the police department had, did not have that. They had revolvers or shotguns. So it was like these instances in Southern California that led to those police departments Getting these military grade weapons.
2: Well, yeah, I mean LAPD and SWAT, and mm-hmm. you know um, the Black Panthers here. We California used to be an open carry state until the Black Panthers exercised that right and took their guns, kind of like you see these white guys in Michigan doing now. Took mm-hmm. their guns to the state capitol as they were fully within their rights to do. And then was it Reagan? I think it was Reagan who was NRA and guns right. activist was like yeah no shut it down and when's the first time you didn't see the NRA go in and be like gun rights they sure did not have they didn't care about gun rights when it came to black gun rights
1: that's so weird
2: yeah so california no. <laughs> used to be carry state i know right it's so ah uh-huh. and now so, yeah. now it's very hard to get as a citizen it's very hard to get a concealed carry um i was i i was able to i didn't get it just because i was married to law enforcement so they extend that to you know spouses of law enforcement just because of what you know your spouse does Mm -hmm. but um yeah no we're actually you know the funny thing about that tank chase that was down in san diego um the tank ended up in my dad's best friend's backyard wow yeah my dad always was like yeah no i remember that it was his yard and he was like oh man (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah it was weird they played on
1: people's fears to like militarize as justification to militarize the cops because they were afraid and the approach should have been a different like reallocating funds to different community-based led organizations instead of giving the police all of this riot There needs to be a better approach to solving conflicts in the community. Maybe we need to start going, if if you aren't already, getting more involved with the grassroots in your local community as to what's going on. And it's sad to say, but there's just, so much actually happens at the micro ground level and too many people yeah. being um, unempathetic. It's letting people that you know don't think Black Lives Matter gain a lot of power.
2: Mm-hmm. And and people are not paying attention to like you said. It's micro level. Go to your city council meetings. Mm-hmm. Your city councilmen. You should know who they are. You should know what they stand for. And when they're not doing the right thing you need to call them out. Um, we had a letter writing campaign. You know, a lot of city councils, if you write letters and you get it in at a certain time, they have to read all of them. So yep. that's what we did to get a diversity council in. And then there was that reverse one where, then they were like, oh no, we read another one. We did another campaign and we're working on, you know, we don't need the sheriff. We don't need Sheriff Chad Bianco. This is problem. He's problematic for um, BIPOC communities um, because, They are the ones, BIPOC communities are the ones who are a lot of times um, in those service industries that have to stay open and you're not enforcing these things. And they're the ones who are coming in contact with anti-masters. There was um, this lady who who was, uh, she ran for city council and she didn't get on and she staged like this protest and she and like 15 people went into like a local like sprouts. I don't know if you guys have sprouts out there. It's like a whole food, like, you know, like a healthy grocery store. Mm. And they came in without masks and they refused to leave. And they're like, we're not serving you without masks. I'm like, You're violating our constitutional rights and all this other like craziness until they finally called the police. And the only reason why the police did anything was because they were, they were on um, private property and they were asked to leave and they didn't. Not because they, you know, were not wearing their masks, but because they were on private property. Mm. How did you get the diversity
1: board? What steps did you take? You, you mentioned that you, um, um, you wrote into the city council, their meetings. Well, ours, ours is like that too. If, if, you, if you get your question in before a certain time,
2: they have to read it essentially. Um, Well, the group that I'm a part of, we started after everything happened with George Floyd and we were upset and we're just like, what is going on with the police? So we created something called Unity in the Community where we ask questions. So it was a three-part thing. So I actually was one of the presenters and I presented my story kind of like I did the first time I ever, I was ever a guest on Red Dove. And I told about my story and my encounters with law enforcement and, you know, being a woman of color and, you know, feeling uncomfortable in this city because I was a person of color. And then we invited um, the Marietta Police Department and the Temecula sheriffs to come in and talk. And then we had some questions that we had asked that we had gathered and we gave it to them so they knew what to ask or about what we were going to ask them. And then we had a Q&A and we televised it. And, you know, people could answer questions and ask. And, you know, it's just like, you know, so we invited leaders of the black community. So um, there are some leaders from the NAACP there. There were some, you know, pastors and, you know, educators and stuff. So it was like a sit down conversation. And so then after we felt like our answer, our questions were answered, the thing is, is that it's never ending work. So we're like, okay, so what do we do next? So we've been thinking of a lot of different things. We were like, we want to do community outreaches. We were thinking about doing a podcast for a little bit where we talk to different people of color in the community about their experiences in the area. Um, But then we're like, you know, we need representation. The city council is not culturally representative of, the population here. And then we're like, the biggest thing they need is an, a diversity advisory council because the mayor of Temecula, Stu, he made national headlines because this city keeps making national he- headlines for racism. It's terrible. He made headlines in the news right after George Floyd by saying no good black person has ever been killed by the police. So he had to resign because people were like, sure. what? is wrong with you or are you kidding me so that happened and then we're like this is a problem and you know what if he had a diversity council to advise and be like, hey Stu, you idiots, let's have a conversation you know like and and you know they're they're not getting these um professional development classes that they need and you know they're 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 making decisions for communities but only from their white perspective and they don't have any other perspectives to go off of. So at first they were kind of like, uh, I don't think we need that. You know, this is a really, really welcoming place. And, you know, we're like, a lot of people don't feel that way. Talk to people of color. And so that was our main mission over the summer. And then, like we said, we, then the other side got a hold of it they got wind and then they emailed and they were like, oh my God, this is such a problem. Like it was vitriolic. It was like two hours of just the most racist rants ever. And you can tell it really shook these white city council members because I was watching them and you can tell they didn't even wanna read what they were, but they had to. And so they had to face the racism in their city over and over and over again. There was no denying it. People wrote in and they had to sit there and read it out loud and you can see they were humiliated And it's like, this is what we were talking about. You have the luxury of not seeing it, but now you do. And so after that, they were like, yeah, no, we need to pass this. So then we were like, you know, they made it. And I think there were over 80 applicants and, you know, uh, people of color, really high ranking people, people who are professors and educators and engineers and um, all types of people. So they got on that council and so We're keeping an eye on how much power that council or that committee has, and hopefully they keep talking to them before they release things. And so we're just kind of basically, we're a group that kind of looks and sees like how, what what else can we do to make this community better? But that's how we got it on the diversity council. We just kept writing in and saying, this is what you need. And we wrote in a lot of letters. And then again, having that meeting, having that televised event where we invited law enforcement to have a conversation and we didn't come as attacking law enforcement just because we knew that that wouldn't get us anywhere but like sit down and have a conversation help us understand help us understand the carotid chokehold why is that a thing explain Is that something your 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 department does what did your departments think about what happened to george Floyd? did you review it what are your actual thoughts on it what did you what did your people say about it you know what is the percentage of incarcerated people of color in your jails is that representative of the population of the people? Why is it so different? So, you know, we ask them those questions. Well, wow. you know. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And, you. you know, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's, it's work and you can't stop, you know, you can't stop. It, it gets tiring sometimes. Sometimes you have to take a break, but um, you know, you just keep going and, if you are an ally, which, you know, luckily I'm surrounded by a lot of really great white allies who see when I'm tired and they step in and they know to be a shield for me and to really step in and be like, yeah, no, like you're not going to talk to this person like this. I'm going to take over, not take over, you know, cause they never talk for me. They're really good about that. And we have these conversations all the time. They never talk for me. They just step in when I'm too exhausted to have these conversations and explain for the 19,000 time why my life matters and why defund the police doesn't mean this and why why you're not allowed to use the N-word and what microaggressions are and all of these things that, you know, you talk about all the time. They're good about stepping in and explaining that and kind of being that punching bag in place of me.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on the Red Dog. Thank Um, you. Always. This is going to close out our episode today. We're going to do chapter four next episode. We ran a little long. Uh, if you like the show, uh, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And for Blue and Rainey's emotional labor, please support them uh, via Cash App for emotional labor. Blue is dollar sign B-L-E-A-W and rainy cash app is dollar sign d-a-y-o-f-r-a-i-n dollar sign day of rain for rainy and dollar sign blue b-l-e-a-w please support blue and rainy for their emotional labor until next time